This episode of the Love in Action podcast is proudly sponsored by Duck Creek Technologies. Today's insurance marketplace requires that carriers be faster, nimbler, and more creative than ever before. Founded by insurance experts, cloud-first Duck Creek Technologies enables property and casualty businesses to reimagine, innovate, and continuously deliver game-changing results using technology to fundamentally change one of the world's most important industries. Visit duckcreek.com to learn more. The future of work isn't about shareholder value, technology, metrics, or automation. It's about being human and putting people first through actionable love. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast, where we hold deep conversations with extraordinary people to help you grow as a leader and expand your business. Here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 108 of the Love in Action podcast, the show where we explore the intersection of business leadership and practical love. Glad you could join us. Hey, we're now heard all over the world, 150 countries. Can you believe that? I mean, I am humbled and grateful for that. And I would be even more grateful if you could share this episode with a friend or coworker. So today's conversation is going to put the spotlight on gender-based inequities, which by my book is a true topic of workplace love for those of us who are allies for women, for all of us who want to see more equality, more fairness for women in the workplace. And I think you'll agree with me that the world of work, it's still full of obstacles for women, right? I mean, okay, sure. We have made huge strides in the fight for gender equality in the last 10, maybe 15 years or so. You know, the gap between the percentage of women and the percentage of men in the workplace, I'll have you know, was the smallest on record just two years ago. But despite that, women remain underrepresented in the leadership ranks with the highest paying jobs, the most gender imbalance. Even in fields where the numbers of men and women are roughly equal, or, you know, where women actually make up the majority, even leadership ranks remain male dominated. So this persistence of all of these inequalities begs the question, why haven't we made more progress? That's the question I'm going to be discussing with my guests today. And they're going to be answering that in many, many other questions. Colleen Amberman and Boris Groysberg will join us shortly to discuss their new book, Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. They're going to walk us through the, the still pervasive obstacles that women face and what managers are doing to create these gender imbalances at work. So bringing to light the key findings from their latest research, Colleen and Boris are going to show us how and why women get pushed out of the leadership pipeline each time for different reasons. So a little bit about my guests. Colleen Ammerman is director of the Harvard Business School Gender Initiative, which translates cutting-edge research to eradicate gender, race, and other forms of inequality in business and society. She has authored various articles and teaching materials on gender and work, and her research with Harvard Business School alumni 
examines how race, gender, and other factors shape their life and career experiences after grad school. Boris Groisberg is a renowned Harvard Business School professor. He is the author of the award-winning book, Chasing Stars, The Myth of Talent. And he's also the co-author of one of my favorite books, Talk Inc., How Trusted Leaders Use Conversation to Power Their Organization. A frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review, Boris has written more than 100 articles and case studies on how firms hire, engage, develop, retain, and communicate with diverse talent to create inclusive cultures. Colleen, Boris, what a treat. Welcome to the Love and Action Podcast. Great to be here, Marcel. Thank you. Yes, great to be here. So before we dive in to this important conversation and your findings on Glass Half Broken, we, we always start with this. You guys ready? So ladies first, Colleen, what's your story? Well, Boris and I actually have been working together for almost a decade, which is a little hard to believe. I, I don't know that I feel like I've aged that much, 10 years. <laughs> but I actually came to Harvard Business School in 2012 to work on something called the W50, which was the school's kind of commemoration and celebration of the 50th anniversary of women being admitted to the full MBA program. And so Boris was already there, had been at HBS for many years. We started working together then. And I came to that project really thinking I would just be at HBS for a year. So the, the project working on um, this, this celebration and these topics was very much in line with my previous background, which was really in kind of the study of gender as a kind of institution and system and engine of inequality. But to be totally honest, I had not been that interested in kind of what that meant for business or organizations, except at kind of a macro level thinking about the economy. So I did not see myself at a business school, don't have a business background, certainly do not have an MBA or anything like that. I'm really trained in the humanities and kind of quote unquote softer social sciences. I'm not a quantitative person. So, you know, I thought this will be fun to work on for a year. It was a transitional time in my life, but clearly ended up staying for much longer. And that was really because I got to work with people like Boris and other really great colleagues who kind of helped me see the possibilities for doing this kind of work at an institution like HBS and really engaging companies as change agents for greater gender equity and really seeing kind of the potential in that. So ended up, you know, deciding to stay and write this book and do a number of other things with really fabulous colleagues at the school. So the non-business person, the non-quantitative person bumps into a guy that is all about data and research and your life has changed forever. Is that what I'm hearing? <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. I now understand enough about statistics to understand how limited my knowledge is. That's how I like to explain it. Boris, what's your story? Uh, Marcel, first, let me just say, as I was listening to your introduction, my teenager kids were actually in this room. So if you don't mind, can we do this again tomorrow? And I'm not going to, I'm going to be respectful of your time. All I need is just like 30 seconds so they can hear something positive about their father, right? So if, we, if we can do that just tomorrow, I think that would be really appreciated. Let's make this a family affair. We'll all jump on Zoom. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I, I actually, I'm realizing that this is a, this is a podcast. So, uh, you know, I can, I can mandatory make them listen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been 10 years and this has been a great relationship. Uh, Colleen is one of the best colleagues I have at Harvard Business School. I have to say, I learned from her more than she would ever learn from me. And I really mean it. I mean, this is not, this is not a compliment. And there's been a, a number of journeys kind of in my life, but I want to pick up on the one that Colleen mentioned as well, because that yeah. was really, really meaningful. And I wrote and did research on gender, but it was kind of on and off, on and off. Mm-hmm. I, but over the last 10 years, in partnership with Colleen and a number of our colleagues, I mean, this, was, this became 
a topic that I deeply care about, that a passion of mine, and something that I feel like if I have a project when I learn the most, and a project that have changed how I see the world, right? And I see that all the nuances and on and on. This project and wonderful interviews that we were blessed to do because people, uh, really busy people around the world gave us their time. You know, I always understood inequality at the intellectual level, but through their stories and those interviews, I mean, I really talk about feeling it at heart, right? Not only standing in mind, but feeling it also at heart. This is what that project actually did for me. It's like living through the stories with many of those protagonists. It just helped me to understand gender inequality and the gender dynamics at work at a level that I would have never understood. It's those protagonists, those interviews, those colleagues like Colleen, and just not to make a plug, but Harvard Business School that allows you, gives you resources, allows you to do research, field research, which is, for me, is one of the most meaningful things we do here. It's the topic that I think transformed me as a professional, as a person, more than any other topic I've studied. Yeah. I can't wait to actually get into the stories and you know some of those interviews that you conducted. But before we do that, though, did it get to a point where did it affect you guys emotionally? Like as you were interviewing, you were probably listening to some heart-wrenching stuff. Yeah. I mean, there's people and particular stories that we heard that definitely have stuck with me. I mean, as Laura said, we were so fortunate to talk to so many people who were so generous with both their time and their thoughtfulness and and just their candor. I mean, it's really, you know, a debt that we can't repay in terms of what people shared with us and helped us to understand and, you know, enabled us to use to kind of communicate to other people what gender inequality really means for people's experiences and careers. But yeah, there's definitely some stories that stick with me. I mean, I think it's a combination of some stories were really hard to hear and sobering. But then coupled with a lot of stories that were very inspiring, right? And Mm. really just certainly did give me hope. I think sometimes you are working in this field, it can be easy to be a little cynical or pessimistic, right? When you realize how far we still have to go, even though we've made so much progress. But I really, I would say, ended the research for the book really feeling inspired and feeling hopeful after talking to a lot of people who were really committed to being change agents. Let's frame this book into its proper context. Okay, now, as a leadership practitioner for 20 years, I have read (laughs) a lot of books that, well, you know, to be honest with you, talk about the glass seals. I mean, probably as early as when I was in college back in the 80s, I was reading on glass ceiling topics, right? So talk to us about what makes this book different and, you know, why now? We really want to do a number of things. One is really want to spend the time and understand the research that's been done on gender and gender inequality. So that took uh, a significant amount of time. We also understood that maybe what was missing from uh, some of that research was is that uh, there's a number of studies that are rigorous, but they're not very actionable, right? And there are some that are actionable, they might not be as rigorous. So we're trying to actually do something that would be rigorous and actionable. Uh We were determined to write a book that will have practical implications for uh, organizations, for managers, right? And I think the other thing that we try to do is to write a book for women and men and to see if we can actually get men involved in creating more diverse and more inclusive organizations because the reality is, Colin and I, we discovered pretty fast, is that if that group of people is not involved, right, and they control many resources, they run many of those processes, they run many of those organizations, right, we will at best make some minimalistic progress. I think that's very well put. Um, Yes, as Boris said, you know, we found as we started to think about this that, yes, there are sort of two poles. There's really great scholarship that's been done that's very rigorous, but that's hard for people to understand what it means for them or how to take action on it. And then there's a lot of advice out there 
about what to do as a manager, as a company, but that isn't very evidence-based, right? And so it seems great because it's, you know, five things that I can do, but yet doesn't have the impact that people are looking for, right? Which is also counterproductive. So we felt like there was a sweet spot that we could come in and say, let's provide something that really is based in research, really is evidence-backed, but is actionable and practical and somebody can pick up whatever their sphere of influence, right? Whether you are a CEO or manage a small team, there should be something in it for you that helps you understand what actions you can take. That's what I love about it. You guys nailed it. The rigorous scholarship side and the the practical side, the how-to action combined that. And then you open it up to a wider audience so that it's for both men and women, because this is a problem that is going to take all of us to eventually solve. We're going to take a quick break and be right back after a message from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Duck Creek Technologies. Duck Creek is a leading provider of core system solutions to the property and casualty and general insurance industry. Duck Creek On Demand is the company's enterprise software as a service solution that's used by insurance carriers everywhere to navigate uncertainty and capture market opportunities faster than their competitors. Duck Creek's functionally rich solutions are available on a standalone basis or as a full suite, all via Duck Creek On Demand. For further information about our sponsor, Duck Creek Technologies, check them out at duckcreek.com. So let's qualify the the research and the people that you spoke with. So talk a little bit about that. I mean, what career level women did you speak to in your interviews? Are they from entry level all the way to the C-suite and in between or walk us through that a little bit? Yeah, sure. And we actually interviewed both women and men. Just to be clear, more more women, but we actually interviewed a lot of men and really in for both of those genders across the whole kind of career spectrum, right? So we did one study interviewing men and women college undergraduates as they were about to graduate, you know, embark on their first post-college jobs, and then all the way up to interviewing people who are sitting on large public company boards or in the C-suite and everything in between, right? Spoke to a lot of people kind of throughout the whole sort of traditional career ladder or career hierarchy and both women and men, and also really pretty much every industry imaginable, mostly private sector, but also folks working in the public sector for government, for nonprofits, and pretty much every industry, you know, from very male-dominated industries like mining. We talked to women in like mining or energy, but then also industries that are more gender balanced, like healthcare, education, so very much a spectrum. The interviews were amazing. And interviews where I feel that there were interviews, just like Colleen said, when I listened to them, I said, oh my God, everything is possible. And I still remember interviews, especially one, when I heard the story of a really successful woman and what she had, the, the institutional barriers that she had to navigate when the interview was over, I left my office and I just walk around the campus just to come down, right? Wow. Just being overwhelmed by the inequality, right, that still existed in our workforce. For me, I just have to say, I really enjoyed hearing perspective of our students, right? So this is a Harvard undergraduates, right? Yeah. By the way, when, you know, during interviews, and, and there's a, the, our team has done it, so other people as well, basically believe that everything is possible, right? Women and men. And it was interesting when we asked them about gender, they almost like looked at us and said, like, I mean, you know, you know what year that is, right? This is not 1960s. This is not 1970s, right? This is 20%. There are more of us here, right? They believe that after graduating, you know, our institution, right, they can do anything. And then we interviewed them again and again when they entered the workforces. And I think we were, uh, Colin and I were really, really surprised 
of how fast they realize that the world is not equal. And opportunities are not distributed in the same way. And all their dreams and aspirations, right, got really affected, not in a positive way. That piece was really eye-opening for me of how fast people who think that everything is possible, right, now kind of realize that, oh my God, I probably will not be able to do X and Y and Z. So uh, that was an interesting part of that book, at least. Yeah. What did you hear? What was one, maybe one particular story that kind of floats to the top that in year 2021, maybe you're shaking your head going, is this really still happening? These are women that are so smart, so ambitious, so, you know, have so much to contribute. And, you know, several of them, I remember distinctly that final interview and just seeing how much their self-confidence had been kind of chipped away at, right? And they'd been demoralized, right? To really thinking, wow, I don't think I have this path to the leadership that I want to get to, which just to me is just such a loss of human potential, you know, and that that's happening even to people, right? Who've gone to Harvard College, who are have all these advantages and yet are still having that experience. And that I think is, is just really powerful and really poignant. So I wanted to add that. But uh, as Boris said, we, you know, we have kind of great stories and examples from all along the career ladder. And, you know, we talked to a lot of women at that mid-career stage, and we talked a lot about issues around caregiving, right, which is often very salient for that stage. And generally speaking, not just in the U.S., but around the world, very often when we talk about the lack of women in leadership and kind of the leaky pipeline where women are stepping out of the workforce for a time or kind of ratcheting back their careers, we talk about that and attribute it to women's choices and preferences, and they don't want to get to leadership. And there's tons of research, you know, existing scholarship out there that demonstrates that that's really not the case, right? That men and women have kind of similar levels of aspiration and ambition. And what really is different is how organizations treat men and women. And so all of that research is there, but it was very much in the stories that we heard that brought that to life. So, you know, one that I remember and that a quote that we talk about a lot is a woman who described, you know, this was somebody who was like formally identified in her org as top talent. They had paid for her MBA, was like, you know, on the leadership track. And she told her employer that she was pregnant. So she hadn't actually even become a parent yet. She just told them she was expecting and was taken from leading a team of 30 people to leading a team of six people. Multiple people that were reported to her were put at her same level. And she says, you know, she kind of tells the story and then she just ends, you know, her her statement by saying it was a demotion, right? Mm -hmm. And this is not something she chose, right? She wanted to take advantage of the flex policies that you know, ostensibly were there to help her continue on her career path and continue, you know, with her aspirations and manage her caregiving, but really was discouraged from that by her supervisor and kind of sent the message that she's no longer as valuable as employee simply because she was becoming a parent. So if you think about that and women receiving those messages, it no longer seems so puzzling or seems as though we can say it's what women want when they, you know, get disengaged from their careers, right? Because they're getting this consistent message that they're not as valuable, that their contributions aren't as important, and that they're not going to have the opportunities that they thought they were going to have. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so many different directions I could take this. You said something really key for me, okay? And I want to squash this assumption because it's my own assumption, and I may even get some hate mail for this. But the assumption is that by virtue of their gender, women aren't moving up the ranks as fast, or we aren't seeing as many women by numbers moving up the ranks to you know, senior level positions, CEO level positions, because they're just not 
wired to want those. They're not interested. It's just not in their gender makeup to want to have the ambition to pursue those higher level positions. You're saying that's not the case. It's not really a numbers issue here or even a, a gender makeup or just kind of how we are biologically by nature wired to want to go this route career-wise or this route career-wise. You're saying that's not true at all, right? Yes, that is what I'm saying. I mean, what, what's really different is not so much men and women like inherently, but how they're treated, right? So they're operating in a different context, which can mean that their behavior looks different. You can observe these differences. But if you dig into it, that's really because they're actually experiencing a different environment, even in the same organization or on the same team. And I think this shows up kind of to your you know, question about what are some stories then up the ladder? You know, we talked to a lot of senior women, right, who'd actually described, and maybe worse, you know, can speak to this with some other stories, but who described once they get to a certain level, their gender actually almost becomes more salient, right? When they're trying to kind of get the, to that final promotion, like to get into the C-suite or they're looking for a board seat. And these are women who have been able to overcome these barriers, right? And they often talked about, you know, I experienced kind of these biases and I put my head down and worked really hard and just, you know, as sort of many people who are in the minority do kind of that phenomenon of I'm just going to be twice as good, you know, to get to where I should be in terms of reward. And that worked for them for a long time. But when they got to the very senior levels and they were the only often woman in the room, they started to realize, wow, I'm really being viewed and perceived in a different way as a woman, even when I've been so successful to be, you know, a, a senior vice president or in the C-suite. And now I want to get onto a public company board and I see all my male peers, you know, doing that. And yet somehow I don't seem to have the same opportunity, even though I have actually overcome so many of these barriers. Just uh, building up on what Colleen said. I mean, I, I think hearing their stories and what they had to overcome. I mean, this is people who actually, I mean, women who actually make it to the top after they navigate 3,074 institutional barriers, right? And I'm exagger- exaggerating by not by much. Is those who actually make them, right? I mean, Colleen and I, we talk about them like as survivors, right? I mean, uh, by the way, in many cases, they're better than men. Right. And if you look throughout their careers, just think about what they have to do. If you look at some of our data, they have to rely a lot more on themselves versus the organization appears, right? Because of all those barriers, cultural, institutional, and on and on. Because if they wouldn't do it, nobody else would help them. They had to do it without sponsors, with limited mentor and coaching network, and on and on. To be honest, I mean, we would listen to some of those interviews and just say at the end, like, look at each other and say, oh my God, like, I don't know how how this person was able to make it. And I think maybe just to kind of say one more thing, and given that Colleen mentioned the, the board work, I think one of the things that I always think about is that in one of the studies that we did before, you know, it was another colleague who was working with us on that, on that piece. We asked board members, male and female, you know, why don't we have more women board members? It was interesting to see the responses. Uh, the female board members basically said, look, it's the network. We just can't break through. Boards basically place on their boards people that they know. And then when you ask their male counterparts, they would say, you know what? We can't find enough qualified women. And I remember like, you know, just like listening to this and just basically just saying, oh my God. I mean, we have this uh, people who control, who gets on boards, believing that in the great 21st century, right? We still don't, they can't find enough qualified women and just being appalled by those type of responses. And part of this is because the group of people that they're looking for is so small. The qualifications that they're looking for, if you're looking only for CEOs, right, you automatically narrow the pool, right? 
boards are looking for kind of credentials, and many of those credentials is, is measured by the titles. You have versus like skills and capabilities and on and on. So the people who control access to the top of the organization have a lot of those biases mm-hmm. that I think we hope that then in our book, we shed some light on and, and help people to overcome. Okay, so if the pipeline is there and the women are qualified, and as they move up the ranks, eventually they're going to run into those institutional barriers. I wish we had 100 podcasts to talk about all 3,000 plus. But for the sake of this podcast, let's really explore maybe two or three of these institutional barriers. And I'm guessing you already mentioned unconscious bias. Is that where really it where these barriers are coming from? And is it just males or is it females too that may have the same bias? That's a question that you can take in different directions. But I'll let you decide where to go. <laughs> so I, I think if you look at how we thought about our book and you know, I mean, we'll let the readers say if, if we actually accomplished this or not. Uh, it certainly took us a lot of time, but maybe we didn't accomplish it. The second part of the book had really practical advice. And there are a number of different levels. One is we talked about the role of men. There's a whole chapter that we were not planning to write, but we ended up writing. We actually talked about what does it take to be an inclusive manager. And there's a whole chapter on that. And by the way, a male manager could be inclusive, a female manager could be inclusive, and a female manager could be non-inclusive, the same as male counterparts, right? I think one of the biggest surprises for us was that it's kind of how distributed it is by gender, right? You can have an inclusive manager who is a man, a non-inclusive manager who is a woman. And the other way around. And that was actually a new chapter for us as well, because we had to write it because managers control access to resources and many other opportunities. The chapter that we always, where we actually started was a chapter about organizational practices. So there is a chapter in the book where we talk about what happens when you attract people in an organization, what happens in interviewing, what happens in onboarding, right? And integration, when you show up in an organization, right? I mean, who integrates you, right? How do you build relationships? all the way through promotion and compensation. And if you look at our data, managing compensation and promotion, that's where a lot of biases are. We ask these questions, how much are women disadvantaged in organizational processes? Compensation and promotion wins, right? A great deal was at about 71%. By the way, hiring was about 48%. So across the board, the numbers are large, but the compensation and promotion kind of wins. And I put it in quotation marks. And what we do in the book is basically discuss and each like, what can you do, right? As an organization. Because at the end of the day, if we need to change things and we need to create more diverse and inclusive cultures, right, it happens through a lot of people practices. It happens to who you attract, how do you hire, how do you interview, right? Whether the 11 people that you're going to meet when you get interviewed are all men, which, by the way, is, you know, we're saying, wow, that's 1970s. Not really. That's 2021. So organizations really have to focus on processes, make the processes more fair entrance, and then make the managers who run those processes more inclusive as well. No, absolutely. I mean, I think what we try to do is present this model, right, that pulls together both what the the kind of qualities, right, of a manager, for instance, overcoming some of your unconscious biases, right, and kind of how you can cultivate treating people in a way that is equitable, right, that does not sort of fall back on some conscious or unconscious beliefs, you know, about what certain groups of people are or are not like, right, whether that's, you know, obviously gender and also race and other identity characteristics, you know, we have these beliefs about people who fall into certain groups. But as Morris was saying, it's really coupled with this approach to structural changes, right? And kind of how you do things. I mean, the, you know, the comment we were talking about earlier with 
in a lot of sort of knowledge, quote unquote, knowledge work type firms, assignments are really important, especially early in career. And that's a great example of you need both, right? So if you don't have any process for thinking about how to distribute assignments in a way that's fair and make sure people get get opportunities on like an equitable basis, then, you know, you have a huge opportunity for decision makers to just fall back on their unconscious or conscious beliefs, right, about men versus women and who's suited to different types of assignments. So, you, you know, having a process in place can start to mitigate that and prevent that. But that's only going to do so much if you don't also have decision makers and managers who are committed to that principle of equity, right? And and who are not going to say override the process because, oh, I want my favorite person who just happens to look exactly like me on this assignment, right? Or just not, you know, even less sort of egregiously, you know, just not really demonstrate a commitment to that practice of, okay, we're going to make sure that people have access to opportunities and development that is distributed fairly, right? So it's really about both, you know, the people and the and the structure. Okay, so I definitely want to touch on the the piece about male allyship and how men can be better allies to women. But before I do that, let me step back a little bit because this is really key for me, okay, for my listeners. On a systemic level, because this is a leadership podcast, so let's think about leadership promotion, moving up the ranks and developing your career. Because as you stated, we just killed the assumption that there aren't enough women moving up the ranks. That's why the numbers are low. That's not the case. So on a systemic level, where do women start falling through the cracks as they move up the ranks because of those things, because of those barriers and the unconscious bias? Where does it happen exactly? Marcel, I think if you look at our research, I think it happens at every level. It happens at the junior level. It happens, and a lot of this happens in the first promotion to management. That's where you have a lot of. Uh, uh, so, I mean, it, it happens. One of the reasons why we took this systemic kind of practice-oriented approach is we really wanted to for readers to see that it happens in hiring because, like, similarity. We like people like us. After all, we're like great. It happens at integration. It happens in development, and it happens in promotions. It happens in compensation. And just think about the numbers, right? If it happens a little bit, right, cumulatively, cumulatively across the board, it's a really, really big problem, right? It's plus this and plus that and plus that. And the cumulative effect is the reason why we have organizations, right, that still not very inclusive. And, and let me also say there's another thing, and maybe Colleen can talk about some of the great men's stories that we heard. But it's very, very clear that organizations do focus on diversity and inclusion. But we find that still a lot of organizations that just focus on a D and not an I. Mm-hmm. And the difference between diversity and inclusiveness is diversity is about counting the numbers. Inclusiveness is about making the numbers count. Nice. I think at the end of the day, if organizations that are able to attract talent, if they will not do everything else, they will not make much progress. All right. So I buy Colleen, what's a great man story when we talk about men helping women in the workplace? Yeah, we actually have a lot, which, as I said, was one of the things that gave me a lot of hope and inspiration, you know, especially as we kind of were finishing the book and I was, you know, reading back through everything and realizing, wow, we have a lot of great examples here to share with people. So I'll share actually two briefly because I think it demonstrates that it's not actually about where you sit in the organization, right? It's about kind of where you can intervene. And so, you know, two stories. One is about intervening at the hiring level, right? At just 
let's make sure we get people into this organization in an equitable way. And then the other is about, you know, what happens to Boris's point about development. Are we actually enabling women to advance and move up? So on the hiring side, one of my favorite stories comes from somebody who, you know, was like mid-level in his career. So not, you know, a senior leader at his firm but happened to see a list of people who were going to be phone screened for an entry-level analyst role at his firm, which was was in finance. And there were 50 people on it, 50 names on it, and no no women. And he was like, wow, this is a little troubling. You know, he was taken aback. And so he actually went to the HR department and said, hey, what's going on here? This doesn't seem right to me, which in and of itself is really important. There's research that shows when men do things like that and kind of speak up, about gender inclusion or advocate or, you know, just call out something that seems unfair and biased, their words actually have some extra credibility and legitimacy because mm-hmm. they're men. So just that in and of itself actually was, was impactful. So he said, hey, this doesn't look right to me. But he actually went a step further because HR didn't give him a great response. They gave him this typical answer, which we were just talking about, of, well, we can't find any women <laughs> to interview. And he knew that wasn't true. So he's, he went off and with a colleague sourced some women to put into this pool, right? To kind of say, look, I've proved that that assumption is not true. Happy ending, they were able ultimately, you know, other people at the firm got involved and they actually did kind of change the process and update it so that that wouldn't happen again. And again, he was not head of this firm or head of HR. He just saw a problem and said, I'm going to raise my hand and speak up about this and see what I can do to contribute, right? And come up with a solution. And the other great example, but kind of at the other end or kind of the, the higher level of the organization is a CEO that we interviewed who spoke about you know, one of the things he really wanted to leave as his legacy was when he stepped down, he really wanted a woman to succeed him as CEO, right? And for that to be part of kind of his legacy. But he knew that he couldn't just like hope for that or say that, and then that would happen, right? He had to take some action. So he told us about, you know, a woman that he hired into the org at a senior level and consciously making sure that she had opportunities to move into profit and loss roles, right? To kind of rotate through key parts of the business. So that when succession planning started to come up on that board, she was in the mix, right? As somebody who could be a viable candidate. And that was through, you know, him making sure that he was providing those opportunities, right? And kind of sponsoring her. And, you know, again, happy ending here. She was considered for the job and was appointed CEO for CEO of that company when he stepped down. Well, you profile women trailblazers with, you got these great stories throughout the book. And one that caught my eye was that of uh, Ana Paula Pessoa. I hope I pronounced that right. She's from Brazil. And she worked as a CFO of the largest newspaper in Brazil. And and she talks about soon after she got that CFO job, she had her second child. And she talks about not being marginalized after she came back from maternity leave, because there again, unconscious bias sets in, right? When you go on maternity leave and you said it, that women aren't as valuable after they have their baby and come back from maternity leave. It feels like, and and often they're demoted. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, she came back from maternity leave and I'm going to read part of her account straight from the book. This is what she says, and I quote, I was still breastfeeding, so I negotiated coming back early from my leave as long as I could continue breastfeeding. During the first year, I would pump for milk if I needed to. I would turn on my electric pump in meetings with lawyers, with bankers, at the director's meeting, at the board, literally at any meeting. People still remember the noise it made (laughs) after all these years, end quote. So it's astounding to me that she uses the word normalizing motherhood 
And those two words just hit me right between the eyes, Colleen and Boris. I mean, normalizing motherhood in the workplace with her male bosses. I mean, how does that strike you guys? Yeah, that's a favorite story. And Ana Paula is a really amazing leader. And I think one thing, you know, you can track throughout her whole story is how she basically, you know, kind of figured out how to present what she needed and what she wanted, right, to the people around her, you know, both her peers and her supervisors, right? So the other examples of this where she sort of raised her hand and said, hey, here's what I need. Here's what works for me and kind of got her company to support it. And so in this example, you know, to be clear, she you know, wanted to come back while she was still nursing, you know, there's a really exciting project, you know, that she as CFO could play a part in. And so she wanted to do it, but she didn't want to sort of feel like, you know, she had to go hide in a corner, right? When she needed to, you know, to pump or sort of feel like it was a problem. She just thought, okay, here's what I need. I just need the support to be able to kind of do balancing of my caregiving and work roles in a way that works for me. And, you know, she goes on to talk about, it really was very intentional on her part. You know, she really did want to normalize again, taking whatever approach works for you to balance those roles. And she, you know, she mentions later, you know, having um, conversations with her male peers who, you know, would sort of talk with her about it and say, in a supportive way and say, and she would say to them, I'm also doing this for your daughters, right? Or for women in your life who are coming up after me so that, you know, there's examples and people out there who've done this, you know? So if this is the way that they want to approach that balance, you know, they know that this is actually normal. Again, you know, it's not something that they need to go and hide from their peers. You know, the fact that they're in this particular stage of their life. I'm all also doing it for your daughters when they come up the ranks as well. So that's, that just gets me. By the way, I mean, Marcel, this has been mentioned to us by a number of uh, male leaders, right? That engaging in the conversations like this, I mean, for them, just like, uh, you know, it was for me, I mean, the learnings, it just changed the way they see the world. It changed the way it, I think it affected their personal lives as well as it, how it affected their uh, professional lives uh, as well. So I, a lot of times when people ask me why I do what I do at this point of time, I say the same thing, right? I do it for my girls and boys and girls, but I want the way I feel. I have about, about 10 years to see if we can build better organizations. So my, my daughters can actually enter more inclusive and more diverse environments. And hopefully they'll have better stories that, than some of the students that we actually interview. It's interesting you picked that example, right? Because what we made a conscious choice to actually interview people around the globe. So we have, a, you know, we have this great story from Brazil. There is one of the most favorite stories we have from UK. About, it's a story about BBC. And, but also we have people from Asia and Africa and Latin America and on and on. Because one of the things early on people say, well, I mean, there are cultural differences between countries, right? And on and on. We don't discount that. I think that's really important. But what Colleen and I kind of keep coming back is, yes, that's true. But organizations and managers have a real disproportional impact in your career, right? And given that that story is happening in Brazil, it actually tells you something about it as well. So as we wind down here, I want you both to speak to the CEO right now. We have a lot of executive listeners. So what does a real commitment to gender equity look like? two ways, at the individual level and then at the organizational level. Maybe we can start with the individual level. Well, I think for, you know, a CEO, a leader at an individual level, it's the same thing that is true for, you know, anybody in a leadership role at the individual level. And what we talk about in this chapter on management, it's really about being willing to be reflective, right? To turn kind of your, you know, your critical eye, you know, your intellect that you sort of turn on hard business problems on yourself, right? And in a constructive way, right? Not to, 
beat yourself up for having these unconscious biases that we all have, but to say, how can I reflect on decisions that I'm making, assumptions I may be making, the way I assess people, and just take a step back, right? And think about, are there some biases coming into the into play? Or when I think about who my go-to person is, if that person looks just like me, just stop and, and reflect on it. Again, it's not about sort of us providing a prescription for you know who you need to support, but just for the individual person, it's really about being reflective and then applying kind of some of these principles that we offer about how to sort of develop your capacity as a leader who really is inclusive on that kind of interpersonal individual level. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have much to add to this, to what just Colleen said. I think it's great. I think there are certain things you can control probably more, and that's who you are as a person, as a leader. And then for people who actually lead organizations, we spend a lot of time Marcel, on thinking about leaders as visionaries. In addition to actually visionaries, leaders are also also architects of organizations. So if you ask me to kind of say, they need to take that job seriously. And what it means is not only structure, who reports to whom, but also are you architecting a diverse and inclusive culture? Because there are choices that you can clearly make as it relates to a lot of different processes, right? And I think that are really, really important. And the other thing that we say is it gives us tremendous amount of confidence that we really feel that at this point of time, we can make a big difference on uh, creating diverse and inclusive organizations because there are people who are unhappy now, and I'm talking about women and men. There are organizations that are unhappy, and the governments are unhappy about what's going on. So I think in my mind, for the first time, you actually have three groups, right, are aligning and saying, this has to, well, we have to make a difference. And because it's government, it's organization, and it's people, a man and woman, I think a lot is possible over the next 10 years. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, bring it to a close. And uh, that is, we always ask our guests to close the episode uh, their way with one key takeaway. What's uh, one thing from this discussion that you would like to bring us home with? I'll start with Colleen. Sure. Well, I think the one thing I'd want to say, you know, especially as it pertains to leadership, I think one of the messages of our book is that it really doesn't matter where you are in an organization or what your formal authority is. You have the opportunity to be a leader, that is to be a change agent for gender equity, whatever your sphere of influence is, right? So whether that is just raising your hand to advocate or to call something out, whether that is overhauling, you know, or or addressing maybe some biases and and inequities in processes or just, you know, how you lead your team, right? You really have an opportunity to to be a leader. And it's something that we all have a stake in, right? Gender equity is something that is is good for everyone, not just for women. And we all can contribute to that. And I would just say with a lot of organizations and managers focus on diversity. I think that's really important. Diversity is about counting the numbers. We should not forget an inclusiveness about making the numbers count. I want to thank my sponsor today for making this episode possible, Duck Creek Technologies. Built for insurance, by insurance, Duck Creek offers the vision and tools you need to drive your business in 2021 and beyond. Check them out at duckcreek.com. All right, gang. Well, it's been a, a treat, a pleasure, and an honor. I really appreciate you jumping on the call If people want to connect with you, I know that they might go to different places, but if they want to connect with you and learn more about you, where can they go? Yeah, well, you certainly can check out the Harvard Business School Gender Initiative, and we have a newsletter you can sign up for, so we should be easy to find. I'm easy to find there, always happy to connect with people. Uh, We have There's a lot of other great research on gender and on racial inequality and all dimensions of equity and inclusion and diversity 
in business and society happening from our colleagues at the school. So the generalship is a great resource for that. And, you know, I personally am on Twitter and LinkedIn and, you know, kind of all the usual places. Marcel, same here. You can find me on the Gender Initiative or on the HBS website. It's been a blast, guys. Thanks for hanging out with me. Thank you very much. I'm going to come right back with one action item that I have picked out from this conversation. So here are my thoughts. If you're in management, I urge you to consider this. Who you hire, who you promote to leadership, what you compensate that person is really what your company becomes. So if you want to be a more diverse and inclusive organization, and I teach this in my online course, look closely at all the potential inequities. So you want to investigate and maybe study your current hiring process and how do you promote people. You know, sit down with your HR people, look over previous compensation models, and maybe go back to your offer letters for women and men with the same skills and qualifications for the same job. Are women being compensated fairly and equitably? So I'm challenging you for your action item to check your biases. Are you limiting the career tracks of smart and qualified women because you think that them having a child and going on maternity leave may hold them back or may hold your organization back? I'm asking you to raise up the mirror, be honest, face the biases, and check for imbalances between genders. Chances are you'll probably find them. And hopefully, we can all hope you'll do something about it. Because it's going to be good for all people, and it'll be great for business. That wraps it up. Thank you, Love and Action Tribe, for joining the conversation. Please spread the love by sharing this episode. And finally... If you or your company would like to help us spread this movement globally, we're always looking for business sponsors to help us grow. Reach me on my website, marcelschwantes.com, or find me on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Doing so will help more people to find the podcast so we can keep spreading the Love in Action movement. Until next time, don't forget, the future of leadership is love in action. Believe it, practice it, and be convinced.